0: Hello everybody, Julian Charles here of themindrenewed.com, coming to you as usual from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And today on this 14th of April 2016, I'm pleased to welcome to the programme David Haggith, a.k.a. Nave Dave, of the Great Recession blog, which can be found at thegreatrecession.com info which has the tantalizing strapline and quote this economic predictions, news, insights and humor for the Great Recession. It's been a great recession for a few end quote and I I just can't resist actually sharing this quote from the blog's front page I'm a hard-hitting equal opportunity critic toward either liberals or conservatives none of our political parties have the vision to make the corrections our economy needs and our windbag economists have proven worse than weather forecasters in their economic predictions so I readily take them on so I'm delighted to welcome you Dave for taking us on today thanks very much for coming on the program
1: well thank you i don't know why you'd be delighted to welcome a rascal like that but uh, it sounds kind of rascally
0: (laughs) yeah but it also sounds like it's going to be fun you see so that's what i have in mind but maybe i'm wrong maybe it's going to be a horrendous experience
1: (laughs) (laughs) i've tried to make it fun all along as i go after these guys yeah
0: well i'm really very grateful for you coming on because you've had to carve out some of your time in the middle of the working day to talk to us so i you know thanks for agreeing to do that And I guess I came across your blog when I saw one of your articles flagged up at lewrockwell.com. It's actually going to be the article that we're discussing today, and I dutifully followed that link and began to read some of your material, and it did impress me. You seem to have your finger on the pulse of what's going on in the economic sphere, and uh, obviously particularly centred in the US. And I like your way of explaining things because of your clarity and, as you say, your your sense of humour, which does come through. Um, it's great to be reading something that's quite dark in, in, in some ways, and then suddenly you see the humorous side of it at the same time.
1: You've got to have a little humor in there to numb the pain, right? <laughs>
0: exactly right. So we're going to be talking about this cashless society war intensifies during the global apocalypse. That's the piece that um, I first came across, and that, of course, raises questions in itself. What's the war? What's the apocalypse? But we'll leave that just for the moment. Can we start... With just a bit about you and the blog, could you give us a kind of brief introduction to the Great Recession blog and tell us why you set that up in the first place?
1: Well, for anybody that saw the movie The Big Short back in 2007, there were a handful, handful of people who saw that a great collapse was coming and very few people believed them. Um, I was not one of the wealthy crowd like those who who saw it coming and profited off of it, but I did see it coming. I was working in property management and um, I could just get glimpses of it through my conversations with realtors and others here in the United States, um, real estate agents, that things were really falling apart and I began to put the pieces back together and I became absolutely convinced that the economy was going to crash within about six months. And so in December of two thousand seven, I told my wife, you need to tell your family we had they had a small estate that they had been holding on to for about five years just because it was appreciating so much in value as US real estate prices were climbing so fast, I thought let's just hold on to it and then you know sell it way down the line. I said, You need to push them to really sell it now. I mean, even if you gotta get tough about it, because this real estate market is going to crash, and I think this is going to be a crash that's so big it's going to take down the banking system. It's going to go beyond the U.S. real estate and beyond the U.S. banking system. It's going to take down you know other banks in the world. It's going to bring down the entire global economy. This is looking, to me, massively huge. So she did push her family, and at first they didn't really like it. And then they agreed. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna go ahead and sell it. And they sold it in February of 2008 before things really crashed. And then of course, in the summer of 2008 is when it really began to go down with Bear Stearns, and then later Lehman Brothers falling, and the whole system fell apart.
0: You saw that coming, and of course, we're so often told that nobody at the time saw it coming.
1: Well, that's just right. And then you know you got the movie The Big Short, where other people have come forward and said we saw it coming, and tell their story. And clearly, they did. So there were some that did. But what really puzzled me was why so many didn't. You know, all the big talking heads on television, they seem to have missed it completely. The United States economists missed it. The Federal Reserve, Ben Bernanke, said in uh, June or July of 2008 that he didn't see a recession anywhere in sight. And it turned out he had been standing in the middle of one for half a year. The recession started (laughs) at the beginning of 2008. And I'm like, how can these guys not see this? I saw it. I'm just a small-time property management manager at that point um, why did these guys not see it coming and that really mystified
0: me yeah yeah because they're the, the professional economists and you say that you're not an economist by training is that right
1: no i'm not i've, mm. I've taken economics 101 mm. but to me this was something you could see if you had your eyes yeah. wide open yeah. And just understood basic economics. Hmm. Then I saw how they were going about fixing it by bailing out all the banks, and I thought, well, this is horrible. I I need to start lampooning this foolishness. So I started writing for, I've been writing for a number of years on other subjects. I started um, writing on economics at that time for a few newspapers in the United States and just basically doing lampoons of things the Bush administration and the Federal Reserve were doing to bail out bankers who should have by all means, been put in jail. And instead, they're walking away with you know, massive bonuses that are made bigger because they made their banks fail. Sort of like to be, you know, really rewarded as a banker. You got to be good enough to crash a major bank. That <laughs> takes some special skill.
0: So, why do you think? I mean, you use the term "apocalypse" quite a bit on your site. I mean, you'll have to explain exactly what you mean by that. But you know, you get the sort of idea. I think we can we know what the kind of thing you're driving out there. So, why do you think that now? You know, in the very near future, uh, this is the because I mean, people have been talking about this for decades. I mean, I remember uh, listening to Dr. Stan Monteith's Radio Liberty program back in the 1990s. He had guests on saying, "Oh yeah, you know, it's great." collapse just around the corner. So why do you think now is the time?
1: Well, I've maintained all along that the Great Recession never really ended, that all that's happened is that it's been propped up with mm. all of the massive amounts of quantitative easing that the Federal Reserve has done, you know, basically it's big money printing program where it's printed or created trillions of dollars. We use the word printed, but of course it's you know, all done with a few clicks of computer's sure. keys to yeah. put money in reserve bank accounts. Mm. And that all of this money has gone into the stock market and into the bond market and pumped it up and that it's just a massive bubble. And it's like taking something that's died and you're putting it on artificial life support and say, see, look, it's over. The Great Recession has ended. Um, We've saved this patient. Well, you haven't saved them if you can't ever take the life support off. Not really. And so I've maintained all along that as soon as the zero interest rate policies and the money creation program stop – We're going to go right back down into the same recession we started in, only it's going to be so much worse because we've created this massive amount of debt and we've accomplished nothing with it other than temporary life support. We didn't repair what was wrong inside the patient. We just kept the patient alive. And, you know, now his organs have been decaying inside for another seven years. Well, we did nothing about that. We take off the artificial life support. It's going to be that much worse. Mm-hmm. So I referred to I needed a word for what we what are we going to call this second dip of the great recession because I think it's going to be far bigger than what we saw the first time around though it will take quite some time for it to develop and I came up with the word apocalypse because it's you know it kind of embodies the concept of an apocalypse it's got the e for economy it's epic in scale so it kind of pulls together all those sounds so I thought it worked yeah. I found out it had been used In the Y2K bug days for referring to an electronic apocalypse, but it never caught any currency there. And uh, so I thought, well, it's time to recoin it and reuse it again because I need something to put a handle on this that people can use to talk about it. And the kind of funny thing was is that uh, almost right after I coined the term, I discovered it being used in Forbes magazine in Ukraine. And it was the um, cover article talked about the apocalypse and quoted my article where I had generated that term. I couldn't read much of it because it was in Ukrainian, but I ran it through Google Translate and, you know, discovered what they were doing there. It never came out in the U.S. version of Forbes. So I thought, well, that's interesting. You start something here and it becomes much bigger as apocalypsis in the Ukrainian
0: and of course, uh, as you say, half of it is the apocalypse. So really, that's the idea, isn't it, of a of an unfolding, a, a revelation of the true state of affairs and a sense of judgment about it. So it all fits. Um, can we turn to the substance of your article, which, as I say, is called A uh, Cashless Society War Intensifies During Global Apocalypse? Now, in that piece, you talk about a war that's being waged by the central banks against this Great Recession. And you say that the elimination of cash is actually part and parcel of that war. So could you explain for us what the war is and how the desire to get rid of cash on the part of governments and banks is actually part of their strategy in that war?
1: Well, you know, what's been really interesting to me is when I was a child 50 years ago, I remember my mom listening to these to me, even at the time, it seemed like old-fashioned radio station with these old radio preachers. And they were talking about how the book of Revelation refers to, you know, the mark of the beast. And there would be a time coming when nobody on earth could buy and sell without becoming a part of the beast's economic system and having the number on their, somehow on their forehead and their hand. And people saying clear back then that this would mean going cashless and even back then speculating that somehow it would be electronic. And, you know, electronics were barely getting going at that time. They just invented the transistor radio a few days before. So at the time, that it was really reaching forward. And now here we are in a day where it's being talked about commonly by major economists that we need to go cashless. You know, I've seen articles, particularly this in the last six months, I would say, coming out in magazines like uh, The Economist and Financial Times, major economic magazines, Pushing for going cashless. People like, um, oh, former Harvard professors, uh, just a variety of people writing articles. You know, Larry Summers stating that uh, we need to uh, get rid of the $100 bill Mm -hmm. because it's used so much by criminals because it's so convenient for moving a lot of money. And I think to myself, Really, is that why you're writing this? Because that doesn't make any sense. It's used by criminals. Well, okay, you're going to get rid of the 100 and then you're saying, you know, it'd be much harder for them to do business with 20s because they'd have to carry around wheelbarrows full of cash for the kind of stuff they're doing. And I think that's just utter nonsense. Are are criminals going to stop being criminals because they don't have $100 bills to use? Oh, gee, it's not convenient anymore. We'd now have to trade in diamonds and gold, I guess. So I I just find it hard to believe that that's really the concern, that we want to get rid of cash because it'll make things harder for criminals. I think the greater concern is we want to get rid of cash because all of the Federal Reserve's programs to try to bring recovery from the Great Recession have obviously, well, obviously in my mind, failed. And, you know, the next step that several countries have already taken, like Japan, is to go to negative interest rates, where instead of just going down to zero, now they're going to do a whole different idea. You know, zero saved you money, but negative interest rates, that doesn't save you more. That costs you money. What they mean by that is put your money in the bank, and then we're going to charge you interest for every day you keep it there so that you're more inclined to move it. Well, you know, if they do that, then naturally you want to take your money out of the bank and stick it under your mattress at that point because – you know it's a guaranteed loss. So they can only go so far with that. There's a convenience factor where, yeah, people may be willing to lose a little money to keep their money in the bank just because it's hard to go out and buy things uh, without checks, you know, or without a card to use. So for convenience, they might do that. But if they up that negative interest too much as a way of trying to accelerate the movement of money in the economy, then they know you're going to take it out of the bank and you're going to bury it in the backyard or you're going to put it under your mattress or whatever. And that's where $100 bills come in handy because you know you don't want to have to try to figure out how you're going to hide two sea chests full of cash in your little apartment. But in $100 bills, you can surely find a place to stick a little purse of money away. And so I see that as being the greater aim is so long as cash is available, whether it's the $100 bill or not, as long as any cash is available, people can move their money out of the bank. Getting rid of cash in the government's view and in the Federal Reserve's view and other central banks' views, allows the banks to manipulate the economy more. They believe that they can accelerate the economy and that they know what's you know, best for everybody's good. And the problem is they just can't get you, the consumer, to loosen up and start buying more stuff. Well, if they charge the negative interest, they can push you to buy more stuff. So if they can get rid of cash, you don't have an alternative. Then you got to keep your money in the bank. So they got to get rid of cash So that you have to have your money at the bank, and that puts you 100% at their mercy as to what they're going to do with your money. You know, if you don't spend it fast enough, then they will take it away from you in the form of negative interest.
0: And we have the same call by uh, Mario Draghi of of the ECB. We've got to get rid of the 500 euro note, and presumably that's for the same reason.
1: For the same reason, I think. And then you see a number of, you know, the Scandinavian nations that have moved towards being cashless already, they've made significant strides in that direction to where I'd say most of them are probably 80% cashless. So it's becoming popular. And I tend to look at things in terms of, of trends. And I think, okay, what happens when you have an economic collapse that's obviously global as the last one was, and as it appears, we're moving back into by just about any measure you look at, where do governments look and where do people look for answers when they find out, well, gee, when this central bank raises its interest rates, it hurts that central bank and vice versa. And then we wind up in currency wars between us and trading wars. If we all just had one currency that we all used, one you know, one economic system, we wouldn't have all this difficulty of coordinating between us where one bank can't do something because it upsets another bank. And so there's pressure there, I think ultimately in the back of their minds for going global and whatever solution there is i think in people's own minds it's just kind of natural to think well we got a global problem we need a global answer and we've all been moving so much in the direction of globalism with trade and immigration and just about everything that i think it's going to seem very natural to a lot of people to say well yes we need a global answer we need this this crash that i call the apocalypse becomes so great that people look for a great answer one big in size
0: right so you're you're actually thinking of a global digital currency not this as a global solution that's applied with different types of digital currency which might have exchange rates you're thinking of one currency
1: right that's exactly where i'm going with it and whether it would start out that way or not i don't know but i think that's the intention i think that there's probably a realization within central banks that they want to move in that direction and in the very least, I think society will want to go in that direction. And to go cashless at the same time rather than having a global cash-based currency uh, is going to make a lot of sense to a lot of people because you know, we're used to doing all of our financial transactions without cash now anyway. Who pays their bills by sending you know dollar bills or pounds or euros in the mail? You don't. You send a check you know, at the most. A lot of people pay with their credit cards or with automatic deposits and things like that. So the idea of forming a new currency and printing a whole bunch of money is probably not going to have much currency, right? Mm -hmm. What will is the idea of, hey, I buy stuff on the internet and I don't even know what country I'm buying it from. It's just a website so what do I care? What you know? I don't want to have to figure out currency exchange rates and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So for an internet buying public, going with a global currency makes sense and going with a cashless currency makes sense because that's what you need to buy and sell on the internet.
0: Yeah. And it's fascinating actually in that article that you bring up another article written in The Economist going back to 1988 called Get Ready for a World Currency. And it's got this... Uh, Looking at it now, actually, it's got this illustration of a a phoenix rising from the the, the flames of some burning money, and it's got this uh, 10-phoenix coin medallion around its neck as it unfurls (laughs) its wings. Um, This is minted in 2018, this coin, so 30 years after the date of the article, and uh, just two years from now. um, Of course, that article doesn't specifically talk about digital currency, but um, it does look forward to this transnational uh, or even global currency that you're talking about here. So it's fascinating that you brought out that article from 30 years ago.
1: Well, isn't that interesting? Was it just by chance that they happened to pick the date 2018 that's so close to the events we see right now that could lead in that direction? And, you know, I don't think that something like this cashless system would evolve overnight. It would, you know, there would be obviously many months and months of talks and bringing it about. This is the solution we're aiming for. If they started today, it probably would take until 2018 before they really had it in place. And, well, that's kind of prescient on the part of the economists that, you know, they would happen to pick 2018 for the date of a single global unified currency. Yeah. So
0: Ben, do you think that article was actually reflecting real plans back then by banks and governments or elites of some sort anywhere that they eventually wanted to put this in in place?
1: You certainly have to wonder about the coincidence of that. Mm. And I also wonder about uh, interesting how it's a phoenix rising out of the ashes, almost as if they had some concept there that it was going to take a major global crash that we would rise out of the ashes of that crash to create a currency like that. Mm. Yeah,
0: yeah, and it's interesting, actually, in that article itself, they talk about the dream of there being an international currency, not, of course, called the Phoenix, but they say something like, you know, this has been thought about for the last five years or ten years, which takes it back to 1978. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, I was, um, people who listen to this program will know immediately what I'm about to say because I've mentioned it a few times. And you go back ten years or so before that, and you have a very famous quote, from Carol Quigley's Tragedy and Hope Came to my mind, so let me just quote it here. Yeah. Quote The powers of financial capitalism had another far reaching aim, nothing less than to create a world system of financial control in private hands, able to dominate the political system of each country and the economy of the world as a whole. This system was to be controlled in a feudalist fashion by the central banks of the world acting in concert. By secret agreements arrived at in frequent private meetings and conferences, the apex of the system was to be the Bank of International Settlements in Basel, Switzerland, a private bank owned and controlled by the world's central banks, which were themselves private corporations. So that's back in 1966, and that fits very much with that whole vision.
1: Amazing insights some people have like that. You know? <laughs> it is. it um, is. I think of George Orwell as well, as, and his 1984, and the big brother government that's spying on everything you do. And then you look at what happened under the Bush administration, where all phone calls and all emails were recorded, and, you know, that were sent all over the world. So if the government ever needed to find out what you said or what the prime minister of England mm-hmm. said, um, they could go back and find that phone call if they needed to and and find out.
0: Yeah, it's almost as if they were fans of George Orwell. and I thought, oh, that's a good idea. Let's actually bring that about.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. The stuff that we were horrified, they're like, oh, that is good. Let's go with that. You know, and we live in a time where we're now seeing that happen. And to see how people gave up those liberties they had, those, you know, freedom from being, you know, freedom from search and seizure without a search warrant to do it. So as the federal government says you're a terrorist, they don't even have to have a search warrant anymore. So here in the United States, that's a breach of your constitutional rights, but there are very few people that seem to care because the lack of security hmm. that we all felt after 9-11 causes people to say, yeah, well, you know, you got to give up a few things in order to be secure in this new crazy world. Well, that's how George Orwell's world comes about. Yeah. Uh, with the cash system then, I think it would be the same kind of thing. If there's enough insecurity then people will give up the liberties or the protections that they have in order to have that sense of security. And that's why you know you need to have the whole economic system crash before you can come up with a, a solution that people will accept. Mm-hmm. They'll give up a lot of security to do that. And that's the thing that you're giving up. You know, I just spoke of what all the convenience was of going without cash, how it will make sense to a great many people. But you got to realize what you're giving up with that is your anonymity when you go out and spend things and you're giving up your control over your own money because if it has to be in the bank, you're really at the banker's mercy. You can't just take it out and leave. And those are, you know, really important, I think, security principles that we have with cash that we will give up for the sake of convenience or other kinds of security.
0: Mm. It's also interesting that, that you know you bring up the business about terrorism and how you know people just accept loss of rights, et cetera, because of that. The same kind of thing is being played with this, isn't it, where it's said that actually having cash in hand helps to facilitate terrorists. It's coming up again.
1: Yeah, I mean, you take Larry Summers' article. He's a former secretary of the Treasury for the United States and was uh, running to become head of, of the Federal Reserve. He was one of the candidates being considered before Janet Yellen was, was chosen. So very involved, you know, a uh, president of Harvard University, very involved in the United States economic system. And those are the kinds of arguments that he's making against cash, that it's basically dirty and it's scary. Terrorists use it and it gives power to terrorists. And so playing on people's insecurities as a reason to get rid of it.
0: Of course, he does actually say that he doesn't really want to get rid of it, doesn't he? He says that he just wants to get rid of the high denomination notes, and he appeals to the 1960s when the $1,000 bill went, and he said, well, you know, it didn't mean that cash was got rid of, so that's all scary talk. It's just, you just want to get rid of the high notes to make it more difficult for criminals.
1: Yeah, well, you got to start somewhere, so you take it off and bites, right?
0: Yeah, but he says it's not the thin end of the wedge, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so he says.
1: <laughs> so he says. You know, and you ask the question, well, you know, is all of this a... Uh, you didn't use the word, but basically, is it a conspiracy going back of, you know, is there planning behind it that's gone back for many years? Sure. Is that why the economist back in 78 could see this kind of a thing coming and see that it would have to emerge out of the ruins of, of a you know, the previous economic system?
0: I yeah. think it's certainly plausible. Yeah. Who
1: knows? You know, it's certainly it, – it easily inclines in that direction. It's easy to think that it must have been planned, ah, you know. Mm-hmm. I don't know. And I don't know that you need to know. Because from my point of view, I just look at the facts on the ground. And I say, you know what, whether planned or not, I can see it's going that way.
0: Mm. You were saying about how it's putting the control of your finances, your life, really, in many ways into the hands of the bankers, rather than you having control of it yourself. And another way in which I understand that to be shaping up is that it would also facilitate bail-ins, so you could comment upon this my understanding is that that's the opposite of a bailout which you hear so much about where you have the injection of public funds into a bank to stop it failing but bailing in if i've got that right is where depositors funds are just basically confiscated like what happened in cyprus and so it would make that much easier to do
1: yeah absolutely is because you couldn't escape you know right now the only way if you find out that your bank is going down, you hear rumors or whatever, you might pull your cash out before it happens. And this makes it harder to escape. I'm not sure if bail-ins are a good concept or a bad. My only inclination is to think that they're good. Uh, because what they're really saying, if I understand them correctly, but and I say if I understand them correctly, because I don't think we know until we see one happening really what it's going to mean. But if I understand it correctly, the stockholders are going to be the first to lose, and then the large depositors are going to be the next to lose, and the last to lose are going to be the insured depositors, and they're basically going to say, okay, we're going to take all the value that you guys as stockholders have out, all of the partners and founders of the bank, you're going to lose first, and you know, then the major, major people with you know millions of dollars in the bank, we're going to take X amount from them. And it's all supposedly with the idea of saving the smaller depositors. And the fairness of that would be, well, of course, the stockholders ought to be the first. They ought to lose everything if a bank's going down. Rather than bailing the bank out, which means saving the stockholders, the concept is bailing it in. Let the stockholders pay all the bank's debts.
0: Right, because they were irresponsible in their business plan, etc.
1: Yeah, they, they're the ones who choose the board. They're the ones who are on the board. They're the ones who choose the CEO of the company. And so it's entirely their irresponsibility that let this happen. Now, if that's the way it actually works, that would be good. But so often these things you know, sound well and how they're conceived. But then once they hit the courts and everybody starts fighting about it, things don't happen the way that you thought they were going to. Um, but what would happen, I I think, is that all the money would be put in a lockbox, including the small depositors. That bank would just be closed, and your money frozen, and you can't get it out, as we saw in, you know, Greece or Cyprus, until the whole process goes through the courts or through the political processes that are set up for it, and it's determined who gets how much. Right. Well, in the meantime, if you're a small person and all your money's tied up in that bank. You got nothing to live on. It might be fine that two years down the road when the arguments are settled, you've got some money left, but you're going to be starving now, you know. We've got, you know, a situation with a German bank right now. I think, you know, we we get a chance to see this play out and see how it goes. That hit the news just this last week. I mean, it's been in the news before, but particularly that really they've started down the process of trying out Europe's bail-in procedures, so... We can watch what happens with, I'll call it HEDA for short. This is a bank that's been in trouble for several years, and they're trying to do the bail-in thing. In
0: that particular piece, you point to a, a large number of countries that seem to be going this way. You mentioned China, Norway, India, Canada, Denmark, Sweden, Ecuador, Philippines, Kenya, UK maybe some others I've missed I don't know but at the Corbett report James Corbett has this open source investigation going on called funnily enough the war on cash and he adds others to it as well which I won't do a list of them but you know obviously this is therefore not just a coincidence well the question I suppose is is it coordinated I mean is it uncoordinated in the sense of different countries just sort of catching on to the same kinds of ideas at the same time or is it actually do you think coordinated by central banks and governments acting together to achieve this?
1: Yeah, it's kind of like, is it a pregnant idea that's just uh, giving birth right now because it just simply makes sense given the circumstances or, you know, it comes back to, is it planned? Um, And I guess I just have to say, I, I try to stick with what I can say based on facts when I'm writing my articles. And by the very nature, if it's a conspiracy, I probably don't know the facts. I know, you know, lots of people's suppositions about what's going on behind the scenes but don't really know what the planning is. Now, it's interesting that right now we've got a meeting of pretty much all the major uh, central banking heads and finance ministers here in the United States and Washington, D.C., going on this week. And we've had three emergency Federal Reserve board meetings called for this week. Now, if you know anything about, you know, if you've had experience, I should say, with boards of, you know, wealthy people like you have on the Federal Reserve Board, these aren't guys who like to to meet every other day. These are guys who, if you're lucky, they have a board meeting once a month many places have a board meeting every other month or even just quarterly board meetings cuz they want their business to really count so for them to schedule three board meetings in one week plus a meeting with the president of the united states and the federal reserve head Janet Yellen all in a week when all of these bankers central bankers are meeting in washington dc you got to wonder you know what on earth is going on here the last time the president had a meeting with the head of the Federal Reserve was back in November of 2014. That's quite a long time ago. Mm. And this time, they even called the vice president into the meeting. And they don't usually do that, have the president and the vice president meet together unless it's you know some very critical matter because – you kind of want to keep them apart for security reasons. If something happens to one, you've got the other one.
0: So th- this is your latest article, isn't it? Yeah. And that, that's the one in, w- in which you suggest, I mean, you don't know, as you say, but you suggest that they might be doing this in order to figure out actually how to delay the onset of a, a major collapse. They can see it coming. and
1: uh, Yeah, that for all of that to be pooling together in the United States right now and to be having that many emergency closed-door sessions of the Federal Reserve Board of Governors in one week raises a huge red flag of what's going on here. You know, these, these are such exceptional meetings. And so is there planning involved in how we're going to come out of some state of ruin? Or is there concern that we might be going into a state of ruin? Why is the president meeting with the head of the Federal Reserve? We try in this country to keep the president or, or the chairman of the Federal Reserve and the president of the United States somewhat apart and say you know the president of the united states should not be influencing the banking system and that's kind of sacrosanct ground so much so that when they decided to have this meeting with the president the white house bent over backwards to say several times the president of the united states is not meeting with janet yellen in order to try to influence fed policy he's just meeting to compare notes right,
0: right. which notes so, yes <laughs>
1: really at the once every two year meeting that uh, it includes the vice president and we're just meeting to compare notes and you know that it's such a sticky thing that you have to bend over backwards to explain that he's not (laughs) meeting to do anything really important and you you, you suggest
0: that uh, maybe it's to push this off until after the US elections isn't it so that uh, make sure that the establishment people stay in office
1: well that's one of the things I've certainly said as a possibility because I said that we were going to go you know start crashing into this apocalypse um, right after December 16th that you'd see the stock market at first bounce up when the Federal Reserve ended its its zero interest rate policy, and that then you'd see it round off, and then you'd see it crash into this enormous hole and fall off a cliff. And that's exactly what it did for, you know, right at first it, it went up because – The people who have been driving the bull market were euphoric. Hey, the Federal Reserve ended zero interest rate policy and the sky didn't fall like everybody said it was going to. So, you know, they go a little crazy and crack out the champagne bottles for a couple of days and the stock market goes up and that's what they said it would do. And then they kind of look around and they start thinking a little more carefully about this and enthusiasm tapers and it rounds off downward. And then after a week or two, boom, over the cliff. And that's exactly what happened. And then we get this rally that's taken things right back up almost to where they were. And I asked the question, well, you know, is the federal government going to work hard to try to make sure that whatever crash has just begun in January, we had the worst January in the history of the stock market, even you know worse than any January during the Great Depression. Does this mean nothing? It's all just, that's it, and now the market's recovering? Or is there work going on behind the scenes to do the best to prop this up because, Obama wouldn't want this to happen on his watch. It's certainly not going to be good for Hillary, who has basically, you know, aligned herself with his policies, and it's certainly going to you know, destroy his legacy if his legacy is he wants to be the president who brought the United States to recovery from a financial collapse who inherited a disaster from George Bush, and he helped save the day surely he's going to do something about it. So is that the notes he's comparing with Yellen now? Do they see that their recovery isn't going to work and that they got to try something more? So, you know, the White House did say after the meeting had happened that, well, you know, the president talked about the future direction, the economy may be going and, you know, stuff like that. Well, you don't just talk about where it may be going. I think what you do is you say, you know, the president doesn't really have to try to influence Fed policy as indirect the Fed. I think the Fed pretty much doesn't want Donald Trump or Bernie Sanders to win in the U.S. election because they both hate the Fed. So the Fed has its own reasons to want to make sure that things don't collapse right now because both of those two candidates are saying they're going to collapse and the last thing they'd want to see is for them to be proven right so the Fed for its own reason wants to you know do something to save the day if we're in fact in big trouble yeah. and the President for his reasons wants to so the President could truthfully say I'm not meeting to influence the Fed no, what they're meeting for in that case is to coordinate their efforts to make sure that what they both want to do in their own best interest works. <laughs>
0: yeah, it's good. Good point. And do you think there's a possibility that they think that maybe if it can be held over until after the election and say, perhaps Hillary Clinton would be a good person to uh, control the situation if that were to happen? (laughs) Rule with an iron fist.
1: Yeah, and not only that, but if then somebody like Sanders or Trump does get in, it gives them a good scapegoat, too, for when it'll all crash and say, like, see, we told you the whole (laughs) Wall Street was going to go down if we put Trump in charge, and (laughs) there it went. Right. That didn't take long, did it?
0: Heads I win, tails you lose, exactly. Yeah.
1: And that's why Donald Trump says, well, and I don't like the guy. I mean, he's a bombastic buffoon, but, <laughs> you know, he says a lot of the right things, and he's the only one saying it because he's not, you know, he's kind of anti-establishment, and the establishment can't stand what he's saying. Um, sort of leaves me without a candidate. I'd hate to vote for someone with an ego like that, but I'd hate to vote for any of the So, <laughs> um.
0: I mean, going back to the concerns about uh, you know, privacy, power over your information, that sort of thing. I mean, do you think this would have consequences for dissent? I mean, a lot of the discussion is assuming that the state and the banking system is benign, but it seems conceivable to me that with the limited scope for people to carry out transactions outside of the system... And it would be very easy for governments to, say, switch somebody's money off, a protester, for example, or virtually erase somebody's digital life. I mean, we're giving over, it seems to me, almost total power to this system.
1: Oh, yeah. And they've already done that in some ways. The IRS, Internal Revenue Service, already has the right to shut down bank accounts of people that they think are you know, in arrears on their taxes. And, and they've done that sometimes to people who it turned out they weren't. And they have wind up causing businesses to collapse because they shut them down economically, froze their bank accounts. And it turns out they hadn't done anything wrong. There's been some interesting court cases on this where the IRS has lost in the last year or so. Now, maybe those are just mistakes. Maybe that's a, a government collection agency really believing this person's a criminal and shutting them down. And oops, we were wrong. You weren't. But this is what happens when you have the power to do that before a court case happens. Now, I can understand why they have that power because, of course, if they're dealing with a real criminal and, uh, you know, most of the time they think this is people who are money laundering and drug lords that they do this to. And they do it on the basis of how they see money moving in increments that they see, you know, every day you're moving another thousand dollars, another thousand dollars. Then that's where they jump in and shut you down because they think, well, you know, you're moving these small bits of money and we think you're laundering it. Well, no, some people move small bits of money because they're a small business that doesn't have a lot of bits of money to move, but they've got cash coming in the door every day that they got to, you know, put in the bank and transfer to other banks and stuff like that. So they don't always make the right choice. So if you can have a government agency that can shut you down, even when it's, you know, for what they think is the right reason, Well, how much more so if you've got a government where you don't have cash that you can get out of the bank, they turn off your bank account all the easier. Maybe they would shut you down if they don't like what you're saying and find a reason for it, Yeah, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And then you would be left in a situation where you could just basically barter. There's nothing else you could do, presumably. I mean, I was speaking to Patrick Wood a few weeks ago, and he was saying that, you know, local currencies will probably be outlawed for the same kind of reason. You know, oh, it's only criminals who use local currencies, et cetera. So, so what means of exchange would there be – would just be barter? That's all that would be available.
1: Yeah, and that's very hard to survive in that kind of a system. Mm. You know, it all sounds good. Well, yeah, we'll all have goods, and we'll do a barter system to survive. But that's going to be really rough.
0: So, I mean, what you what know? do you think – should our response to all this be? Is there any way that you conceive in which we can fight back about this? You know, in the way that we actually behave now, can we sort of steer the system away from this totalizing policy that seems to be shaping up?
1: Well, you know, I wish I had an answer for that, and I don't, really. My answer to people has been, you know, do conservative moves that provide you with as much uh, safety and maneuvering room as you can right now. My wife and I, we own a farm. Well, that's good because, and that doesn't work for everybody. I'm certainly, you know, that's, that's just an answer that fits for us, because it does give us capacity to grow things, trade things mm-hmm. if we need to, and support ourselves with our own food. But we mostly own it because we like a farm, mm-hmm. and you know, so that helps. Try to make choices. You know, if you're going to buy a house, at least buy a house that's got a little land and that you know is quality land that you could grow something on if you have to if you have the capacity to do that and the knowledge to do that you know you might protect yourself some by having some gold but just note that gold may not be as safe as you think it is either people think well you know that's what i'll do is i'll buy gold and then i don't have to have cash i can have gold instead ask yourself why central banks own so much gold when they keep telling everybody that it's a lousy investment do they own it so that they can you know some people say well they have to own some to back their currency really See, the last time the Federal Reserve actually gave somebody gold in exchange for their money, I think, was back during the Great Depression. <laughs> Or do you really think a central bank is going to use gold to back their currency so that if you come to the bank window and say, look, I want gold, they're going to give it to you?
0: Yeah, well, well couldn't there be a, a move uh, to just confiscate gold all over again?
1: They could do that again, too. That's what the federal government did in the Great Depression under Franklin Roosevelt. So you could have your gold confiscated. But also, why do they own the gold? Well, there's only one reason I can see for them owning the enormous amounts of gold they do, given their how much they – deride gold and seem to despise gold. It's certainly not to back their money so that they've got you know some gold they can give you if you need it. It's got to be to protect their currency. Their currency is a proprietary product that they have a monopoly on. So you can't do any business in the United States basically without the Federal Reserve's currency. And who owns the Federal Reserve's? The major national banks. Um, That's the way it's set up. They form their own reserve banks in their own region, and then that reserve bank puts a governor on the board of the Federal Reserve. So ultimately, the Federal Reserve is owned by the major banks that own stock in the reserve banks that are scattered – You know, we have 12 of them scattered around the United States. Why do they all want these huge hordes of gold in Fort Knox and in the New York Federal Reserve? So that – if money does start to move away from their proprietary product, their monopoly, what's the one big threat? Well, it's always gold and silver. That people will move to that if you don't have cash. Okay, well, if you own a lot of gold and silver as a reserve bank, you can crash that market. So if you see gold starting to go up at a level that's, you know, at a rate that makes it enticing to people and is creating a run on your currency, you need enough gold as ballast that you can dump for days and days and weeks and months if you have to to suppress that price down to where people are like yikes gold is gold stinks you know this i'm losing money by buying gold so I think that's why they've got it. It's ballast that they can throw off.
0: And you could always play the same criminal and terrorist game again. So anybody who's using gold, they've obviously got something to hide. So you, you could make it socially unacceptable to do that in that way as well.
1: Yeah. So you know, I think there's you know, reason to own some gold. Yeah. But don't hedge all your bets in one direction. Right? Yeah,
0: exactly. That's very good Gold advice,
1: ultimately yeah. recovers its value. They're not going to you know, crash gold forever. Mm. They'll do it to stop a run on their currency. And at least you got something someday when it recovers again worst yeah. scenario.
0: Right, so different approaches, a basket of approaches including as you say, exactly. your, your, oh. your example a farm or, or some place to grow something yeah. some vegetables, a very very practical uh, solution. Um, some people are talking about you know, what we really need to be doing is to use cash as much as possible so they find it difficult to remove it from circulation but do you really think that's going to make any difference?
1: Well I don't think you're going to get enough people to do it um, it could make a difference if it you know, really would take off and, and happen but Most people don't want to go that way. Most people aren't listening to me, you know. Most people are listening to the talking heads on CNBC, and most people go along with the bull market, and that's why it's a bull market. Yeah, sure. So,
0: yeah, so they don't understand the dangers of the situation and seeing it in terms of a a solution and convenience, etc.
1: It's a big tide to turn, and things are happening so Mm -hmm. fast that I don't think you're going to turn that tide of public opinion on a dime like that. And so the better positions are to position yourself safely. You know, have some of your money in government bonds. Um, Yeah, those bonds can crash too. But hey, if the U.S. government bonds crash, well, pretty much all bets are off at that point, right? I mean, at that point, we're so far down in the hole that I don't even know what it looks like anymore. I put some of mine there and I'm not giving particular financial advice to people, but I'm just saying this is what I've done. You know, I've put some in bonds and I haven't bought gold, but some people would, and I I can see a point in that, and certainly land, practical measures. And the biggest thing I'd say is going to be your friendships and your relationships that so you're going to need to help survive.
0: Absolutely. So resources in every sense, um, wealth in, the, in the, the biggest sense of it. And so spread this as yeah. widely as you can. We need to be as creative as we can in thinking about the wealth that we have in every sense of that wealth and spreading it as widely as possible so that it's difficult for a, a unified system to control absolutely everything about our lives. I think that's very good advice indeed. Um, so, I mean, thank you ever so much, David, for coming on the show. You know, it's, it's not a pleasant thing to talk about, uh, but I think it's a very necessary thing to talk about because this is coming along. Your your article makes that very clear. And uh, it's happening right across the globe. There's so many examples of people talking about this in various countries all over the place. And uh, so I am... Very grateful for you coming on the show. Could you remind people how to find your website and just briefly what it is you actually supply on that website?
1: It's called thegreatrecession.info, h-t-t-p colon slash slash thegreatrecession.info. And, you know, it's basically my commentary on what's happening in the economy. That's pretty much what it supplies is I'll write one to three articles a week, picking up on the biggest things that I see happening and what I make of that. And you
0: very kindly allow people to sometimes use your articles. You say as long as there's a a link back and a byline. Is that uh, something that you've recently started to do or have you always had that approach?
1: You know, I held it a lot tighter at first and that's not always the way to go. Mm -hmm. I just had only my own articles on my website and I didn't really let hardly anybody use them. Uh, there was one other site, the Economic Collapse Blog, that I sometimes gave some to. And then I just decided to loosen the reins up on that and just put them out there. So, you know, just give me a link back. You don't have to pay me for them, whatever. And found more and more people interested. And the important thing is getting the word out, and that gets the word out. And, you know, now maybe there's 50,000 readers for one each article as it comes out. And when I was holding it close to my chest, maybe I had 500. Wow.
0: Yeah, made a big difference, yeah. Yeah. Well, just before we close, are there any other websites that you would recommend people to look at to find out more about what's going on economically and politically?
1: Um, well, I do like the Economic Collapse blog, uh, Michael Snyder's site. And mm-hmm. uh, I read Zero Hedge a lot, mm-hmm. and some of my articles sometimes appear there. And uh, let's see, another one I like is David Stockman's uh, website, mm-hmm. a Conquer Corner.
0: Right, Well, thank you very much indeed for that advice and for the discussion. It's great to have spoken to you. Thanks very much for coming on the show.
1: All right. Thanks. I enjoyed the conversation. It was
0: great. And thank you for taking this time in the middle of your your day, because I understand you've got to go back to work. Is that right?
1: (laughs) Yep. Thanks, Julian.
0: (laughs) Sorry about that. Okay. Thanks very much. Bye. Bye -bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.